Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Republicans, Democrats, and 2016. So, Richard, something a little bit different today, more of a look at the political world and the policy world. Why don't you and I start with the Republicans? One of the running themes of the past several months has been, if I can oversimplify it a little bit, a kind of antagonism between Republican elites and the conservative grassroots. If you look at the most recent polling that we have, this is from uh, NBC News Wall Street Journal. Donald Trump, Ben Carson, and Ted Cruz, the three men who most tap into that sentiment, that antagonism, currently have between them the support of 62 percent of Republican primary voters. A lot of people regard those numbers with dread. How do you react to them? Well, you know, I'm not a political analyst, um, but yes, I understand the uneasiness about those particular numbers uh, because of the typical problem that always arises when you have primary voters voting on anything. Uh, the primary voters will tend to be median within the party, and what the party wants to do is to get somebody who's a little bit close to median of the electorate. And so the Republican pros see these three people, and they assume that two people, Trump, who's a wild man, and Ben Carson, who's immensely thoughtful but has no political political experience whatsoever, can't possibly win. The third, Ted Cruz, is regarded by many as a kind of an unguided missile inside the Senate, a man who's taken to giving lone stances against everybody else, thought to be, I think correctly, an excellent debater and so forth, but not necessarily electable. Um, George Bush, who was the establishment favor, is down there. Uh, Rand Paul has refused or has been unable to attract fire. So I think at this particular point, the establishment candidate is probably Marco Rubio. And my guess is he's probably now in third or fourth place with something around 11 or 12 percent of the vote. He seems to do very well when it comes to the debates, gets a lot of professional approval, and then the numbers go up a little bit, but not very much. I do think that Donald Trump will flame out. There's only so often you could be just profoundly stupid. And if you actually sort of, for example, read the piece in the Wall Street Journal today about his antagonism to free trade, I regard that as a basically an absolute veto. You cannot appoint a president who wants to have sort of an isolated United States. And I think others will believe in that. But otherwise, I think the real danger for the, most of the Republicans is they will come up with an unelectable candidate when they think they're going to be facing a very beatable Hillary Clinton. What about the legislative branch, Richard. What about the Congress? We've just seen Paul Ryan emerge as the new Speaker of the House after this protracted ordeal where he essentially had to be begged as the only guy who would unify the Republican caucus. Um, there seems to be a parallel with the, the Freedom Caucus in the House, the conservative types who wouldn't assent to Kevin McCarthy as Speaker and these restive primary voters in the presidential race, that they're sick and tired of business as usual. Um, given the fractiousness of his party. How do you rate Paul Ryan's chances for success in this role? Well, I mean, it depends on two things. One is how long honeymoons last, and I think in Washington, not all that long. Uh, but it probably depends more on the private concessions that he had exacted from people on the sort of on the caucus side, the radical side, uh, relative to the conventional guys. And my guess is he probably had 
was able to get some extract some concessions from them for at least minimal good behavior on these things and so that will give him at least some time to move and then it will depend ultimately on the question as to whether or not he can steal and face down Barack Obama on a variety of issues and it's quite clear there he has not sounded a particularly conciliatory line telling the president that he believes that Congress is the one who's supposed to be in charge of spending bills that it's a legislative function not a presidential function Obama as we know has been extremely liberal in his use of um, um, executive power and I think one of the things that uh, Ryan agreed to do was to do at least jawbone on the opposite side of that issue Uh, and so if he has some success with the White House in getting them to temper I think what will happen is he may have some success in dealing with his right wing um, the small government Tea Party Freedom Caucus or whatever you wish to call them types if he doesn't then I think they will be out again my own view on these issues has always been pretty clear when it comes to thoughts and positions that you take in principle you say exactly what you believe and many of those things include unelectable positions for anybody and certainly a lot of my views do but when you're actually trying to run a political machine where winning actually does matter I think you have to be able to make compromises and the point is you have to know enough about what's really important to your substantive position to figure out what it is that you're prepared to compromise on that's an extremely difficult situation but if essentially everything is rated as indispensable that means you'll compromise on nothing and what will happen is you will end up getting nothing and I think the Republicans really have to worry about that I think they can win because my view about the Democratic Party is it's now all progressive all the way up and down the line and there are a lot of median voters who are very unhappy with that particular situation I can easily see a Republican winning everything from Virginia through the south the southeast the mountain states the you know all of that stuff and maybe even you know places like Montana I guess that's a mountain state um, places like Indiana and so forth and Ohio and Wisconsin uh, Minnesota they could probably win those things so I think they can win the election under these circumstances but I think that it's they're capable of doing things that are really quite stupid, which will cost it to them. And I think that's what keeps the pros up, uh, the knowledge that sounding good in the primaries could be sounding fatal in a general election. I want to get deeper into the Democrats in a moment. But before we do that, I, I want to use that framework that you just put together a moment ago uh, about prudence and in, in choosing what you're going to take on and how in the Congress, given that framework. What do you what do you make of the deal that John Boehner struck on the the way out as far as taking care of the the budget situation and the debt ceiling? It seemed that uh, half of the people in the Republican caucus said, "Look, this is a sensible way to just get this off the table, give Paul Ryan a much easier road to hoe as he starts as speaker." Another half who said, "Look, you've you've sold out the entirety of what we've gained over the past couple of years with things like the sequester." How did you feel about it? I have mixed emotions about this. I mean, I believe in effect that when Democrats predict Armageddon with respect to things like the sequester, that means that it has a very good chance of succeeding in what it does. I mean, the problem, of course, about backing off on these things is that. Matters which were never included in the budget three years ago get put in and then all of a sudden they are so sacred that to remove them and to return to the status quo ante circa 2011 to 2010 seems to be unthinkable. And I think one has to be able to call people on that bet. So I'm not particularly happy. But again, it's much more complicated than just that. The split that is so so difficult is what do you do on the domestic front? What do you do on the defense front? And there's no question that the defense budget in my mind has become too small. 
small. And not only does it become too small, but the processes by which it are allocated seem to be completely antiquated. And so you're now basically faced with the president who says, I'm going to give you what you need on defense, only if you give me what I want on domestic spending. And you're not strong enough to force the deal. And so my general reaction is to push as hard as you can to see if you could get more on the defense and less on the domestic. But when I have a leader who makes a deal and tells me it's the best that it can be, I'm tending to cut him a little bit of slack if I think that his values and his hearts and his disposition are more or less what my own is. Uh, Obama is a ferocious negotiator. I mean, he doesn't know what he's doing, I think, substantively, but he does know how to bargain and he has a unified Democratic Party behind him in a way in which the Republicans do not. So I I think, in effect, I, I understand the sentiment to be unhappy. I hope that there's another round in this particular battle. I hope that the rhetoric starts to pick up about what's wrong with what it is that the Democrats have done. But I don't think that uh, brinksmanship would have done any better under these circumstances than it did when Newt Gingrich shut everything down in 1995 and had people cursing at him at night because they couldn't get their passports to go overseas. So uh, in the end, I think I would give it a qualified endorsement. I trust insiders more than I trust myself when it comes to figuring out what politics turns out to be. And I don't like being too hard on people who find themselves in impossible positions. You've said two things in the course of the last couple of answers that are are interesting separately and even more interesting when you put them together, one of which is that the Democratic Party in your judgment is entirely wall-to-wall progressive at this point, at least for the most part. And the other, what you just said, that they're they're pretty unified across the board. And it's interesting, Richard, when you look at – we have a situation now where we know Joe Biden isn't going to run for president. The smart money is all on Hillary Clinton being the nominee at this point. And you've got Hillary Clinton running on a platform – that in a lot of ways seems to be a complete and total repudiation of her husband's presidency. I mean it is interesting how much the worm has turned here in a, a relatively short period of time and you're hearing Democrats say things much more openly left-wing on a topic like guns, for instance, if you look at the Democratic debate, than anything they would have dared to touch even when Barack Obama ran for the first time in 2008. To what do you think this is attributable, the fact that they've sort of let the mask drop at this point? Well, I think it's attributed to a lot of things, including change in the composition of people who actually have high office. Um, you know, putting somebody like Elizabeth Warren into the Senate um, when she's been so outspoken and giving her essentially a veto position over all sorts of appointments on matters relating to financial affairs and having essentially the implicit bargain being, I've got genuine enthusiasm behind me by my left wing. Hillary, you've got nobody who loves you and a lot of people who will vote for you. I'm going to stay out of this election, but you have to essentially move in my particular direction. And I think Mrs. Clinton is sufficiently much the politician uh, that she's willing to live with that particular deal because, A, I think she was always further to the left than her husband, and B, that she is a born survivor in the face of adversity and she's willing to play that particular game. I think the second difference that, that takes place is if you look at the electorate, I think that the level of populist discontent with established institutions is considerably higher now than it was when George Bush um, left the presidency in 2009 in January. Um, What's happened is everybody thinks the banks have gotten an unconscionable break in what's going on, that corporate profits turn out to be excessive, uh, that unions are not having sufficient power where they ought to be celebrated and so forth, uh, that American involvement overseas has been a disaster. So even if Obama wants to pull out slowly, most of these people want to pull out completely. And there's no question that the Democrats have the same dilemma in the primary that the Republicans do. If, in fact, uh, they're going to run primary elections, are they going to have 
the median in the party dominate as opposed to the median in a general election. That pushes them further to the left, just as it pushes Republicans further to the right. It is also the case, if you actually look at any of the voting situations, there is today in the United States Congress nobody on the Republican Party who is further to the left than any Democrat, and no Democrat who is further to the right sort of compositely than any um, Republican. So there's no overlap between the two parties now. The thought that there would be, you know, the Southern conservatives and the Republican progressives from the plains, all of that is dead. There are certainly differences within both kinds of parties, but the fact that there's no overlap means that compromise becomes infinitely more difficult under these kinds of circumstances. Now, you know, what do I think about this? I, you know, I have mixed emotions on everything. I tend to be more hawkish <laughs> than many of the Republicans who don't want to get themselves involved. Um, when you get somebody like Donald Trump sort of sounding the populist anti-free trade vote, I just don't know what to think. I think most Republicans will go the opposite way on that particular question. I think on labor issues, the, defend, the, the Democrats are completely hopeless in everything that they endorse, but they have a lot of popular support on these measures. Maybe not on the pro-union side of this thing, but certainly on the anti-discrimination law side of things, the religious liberty side of things. The Democrats have become actually quite intolerant on social issues. It's no longer the case that they were basically more liberal on these things. They become more authoritarian and makes them, to me, a much less attractive party. So I'm sitting here looking forward to this election and thinking, you know, I don't see any hugely bright prospects out there. I see a Republican Party capable of self-destruction and a Democratic Party, which is already self-destructed. <laughs> so we are like at this point, we are at this point almost exactly uh, a year away from Election Day 2016. We really don't know who the candidates are going to be, although like I said, Hillary's got pretty good odds. We don't know what issues are going to be most salient at that point. So just just sort of abstracting this out, Richard, this will be the final question. Um, what should – parties aside, what qualities, what priorities should voters be looking for when they're considering who their next president is going to be? Well, I think they actually need somebody who has genuine leadership capacity. One of the problems about Obama is not only does he lead from behind, but he talks from behind if he talks at all. Um, there are many issues which I think are of extreme importance. For example, the Ferguson effect and the crime issues on which the president has gone um, AWOL. I mean, he just simply will not talk. His foreign policy, he won on the Iran Treaty, and he's been dead silent with respect to that area. And I do think that people want to have a president who speaks candidly and indicates what his vision is, and they would prefer candor from the right than they would prefer evasion from the left and vice versa. And that stuff, I think, has been missing. I also think, in effect, that uh, it's going to be very important to do two things. One, in the foreign arena, I think that there is a real sense that America has fallen in respect of the world. Um, People just don't think that we keep our promises. They don't think we're particularly focused. Everybody now says we have to have temporary alliances amongst ourselves because we can't trust them. Um, If you look at this from the American scene. There's difficulty in the South China Sea. There's difficulty in the Middle East. There's difficulty with respect to Israel. There's difficulty with respect to NATO. There's difficulty with respect to Ukraine. Nothing seems to look very good, and and we need to be revitalized. I think on the domestic front, I think that the looming failure is going to be how you recalibrate the health care system. The striking decline in the enrollment, I think, of the Obamacare program shows that all of the skeptics who believe that adverse selection 
election was a serious force and these plans were not sustainable, that they were right. I think the things will become only more complicated once the employer mandate has to go into effect next year. And you'll see relatively low levels of enrollment off of that because the programs are so calibrated that sensible people want to stay out of them and try their luck with self-help on the one hand and emergency room care on the other. And that somebody at the president's side is going to have to deal with that. I think the president is going to have to exert some leadership on an issue which he doesn't control. What we do with surging pensions in the various states, uh, which can bankrupt them and create incredible pressures on the federal government. Uh, so I think you know there's a lot to be done. And then the obvious one is we still have no growth in the United States. Um, population growth and economic growth are kind of about the same. Uh, it turns out median incomes are down. This is with a huge dose of progressive redistribution. Uh, there is a widespread belief in this country that Obama was right when he says that deregulation and lower taxation do nothing to promote growth. I regard that as the cardinal sin, that you need to do both of those things, but you have to do them with a consistent long-term conviction so that people believe that the policies won't change six months down the road and therefore will then commit themselves to sort of long-term investment. And it's the crisis of confidence on the growth issue, um, which is shaped by all these other issues. And when you put it all together, uh, people are going to be very nervous. The reason I incline to somebody like Rubio in the Republican Party, I do think he knows how to give an inspirational talk. And given the kind of flat morale that you see in the United States, somebody who can basically restore stuff personal respect to large numbers of Americans and give the prospect that we will do better than we seem to have done are there. Nobody, I think, could run on the Obama record and say that his presidency has been a success. How bad it is, I think people can debate. Given my own predilections, I think it's been horrific. Uh, But even those people who support him have to essentially have a certain amount of disappointment uh, when they evaluate the performance, particularly in his second term. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.